The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. I think currently in St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican, um, if I'm not mistaken, I know some of these art pieces move around and some of you are involved in art. And if I say something wrong, can you wait to correct me after the teaching is over? Um, But the point is, is um, I, I believe that this is a great meditative piece for us tonight. Because the majority of you I know, I know most of the faces in this room, and I could probably get many names correct, even though I wish I could get 100% correct. But when I look out over this space, I see many of you that have been in your faith for a long time. And so Good Friday for you, isn't this isn't your first. But I don't know all of you, and so I'm going to talk as if there are some of you in this room that believe that this cross mattered, and then there's others you in the room that are here that you're trying to decide, does it really matter? What is the big deal about this? And so this image will be up for us tonight. And, and there's many things about the image that I just want to get out of the way, which because some of you are so into detail that I must call it out. Mary is disproportionately larger than Jesus. Okay, if Mary was to stand up and Jesus's body was to rise up in Mary's arms, Jesus would be about five foot, two inches tall and Mary would be about seven foot, ten inches tall. So somehow Michelangelo got the proportions for wrong, but I think he got the tone correct. Um, And so in in the feel of the statue. So I I, want to just say now we're free of distraction. Okay, we're not, this is no longer going to be a distraction because at the end of the day, there was a moment not long ago where at this hour, that could have been the picture. I just want you guys to admit, Jesus had to come off the cross into somebody's arms. Okay, just that's where we're going to start. So let's pray. Father, there's been so much said about Good Fridays. There's been so many teachings about Good Fridays. Father, this is the 11th Good Friday teaching that I've done in Baltimore. And Father, I believe the only thing that I've said redundantly is Jesus. There are so many ways to talk about Friday. But there really is only one truth that there is no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. So, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would free this room of all distractions, that we could be fully present, that even if things that I've planned to say need to be edited, would you edit it on the fly, Lord? If there's things that need to be paused upon, would you help us to pause upon them? But Father, at the end of the day, I know that your spirit is an excellent teacher. And so, Father, I ask in Christ's name that your spirit would do more than I ever could ask or imagine of you tonight. And so, Father, I thank you. Thank you for this chance to be together. And we pray this night in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
I do want to thank you guys for coming, and I do want the first opening part of this for me to try to create you going back to that first Good Friday. Um, many of you literally came here from work, and that would have been what that Friday would have been like for many of you. You would have been busy about your day. You would have been hearing about this riot and people yelling and that Jesus, the one that had maybe given you food from a boy's lunch, was being placed upon a cross with a king's title above his name. And you may have been hearing things all day long, but it wasn't until the evening that you really caught wind of everything that was happening. And then others of you would have been right involved in it. You would have been watching. You'd have been along the street. You may have been one to actually try to help Jesus up the street, whatever it would have been. At some level, I want us to get there to where right now at about, what, seven o'clock on Friday night, there would have been preparing for the Sabbath. They would have been bustling back to their houses because they wanted to continue to worship their God in an appropriate way. And so I believe that the best way for us to have this night is to try to maintain as somber of a posture as I can, but yet communicate with you what I believe is the greatest story ever without giving you the joy of Sunday morning. Okay, so let me do it this way. At some point in time, a few hours ago, Joseph of Arimathea got permission to get Jesus off the cross and into a tomb by sundown. The scriptures don't give us a whole lot of detail about what that would have been like. But we do know that Joseph and Nicodemus, and most likely, according to the gospel accounts, the disciple John was, was next to Mary, and there was, it talks about women being closer to the cross and others being farther away. And so the only way that I can view this is logically, because we can't go back and say, this, this person did this, this person did this, this person did this. So I want to take a little bit of liberty to tell you that somehow Jesus got down off of it, and he couldn't do it by himself because that wasn't the plan. And so somewhere along the line, I'm guessing that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus then showed up with a ladder and clunked that ladder against the back of the cross so that it was hitting at the crossbar. And one of them steadied the ladder while the other one climbed the ladder. And somebody went to one of Jesus' hands that was obviously now torn and elongated so that it was most likely a hole larger than the head of the nail so that they could reach over the crossbar. And mind you, they had to climb up the back of the cross, and one of them, somebody, and I'm going to guess that it was probably Joseph or Nicodemus that climbed this cross, reached over with their arm, pulling Christ's arm off, and watching Jesus' body weight shift to the other arm that's still attached, because there's no other way they could have done it. They would have felt the shift of Jesus' body weight moving from one side to the other, and then I would imagine them hustling over to the other side of the ladder. And then now knowing that as soon as that arm is released, Jesus' feet are still attached and Jesus is going to come falling forward. Now let me remind us that Jesus was brutally attacked. So him falling forward into somebody's arms had to be an, an amazing experience. I mean, and I use the word amazing because I don't really know what do you, some of you are in medicine and you've seen bodies come into the emergency room or into a hospital bed mangled. You maybe have even touched it, but the majority of us in this room have not seen somebody beaten that severely. 
have not seen somebody whose shoulders were both dislocated. Somebody that obviously had been punched in the face so many times that this face was swollen, maybe almost beyond looking like Christ. And now you have him attached, one arm to the cross, all his body weight. And so whoever, if it was Nicodemus or Joseph or somebody else, you know that Mary had to be there. Not just Magdalene, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, with John, the disciple, next to him, next to her, probably bracing themselves to receive Christ motionless, blood-covered, sweaty, greasy, disgusting body just falling into their arms. So as soon as that body's released, it comes down, and now the rest of them are holding. I'm, I'm imagining it had to be more than one person, because if any of you have ever held somebody that is lifeless, you know the weight of that, let alone the difficulty in holding on to somebody that has been that badly beaten. And so I'm, I'm gathering at this point in time, again, this isn't meant to be distracted by, like, well, men did this and women did this. I'm just trying to get them all involved in the story. But I could imagine Mary Magdalene or maybe even one of the others that had touched Jesus in a special way now going and removing one foot at a time off of the nails as others are holding Christ. And I imagine because of their great love for Jesus, somebody had either brought a cloth or had taken their outer garment off, laid it on the dirt, and then they laid Jesus' body down on that piece of fabric. I could imagine, though, for a minute that they just stopped and looked, even though they were in a rush to get Jesus somewhere before dark. How could you not just stand there and look at the one that had so lovingly looked at you? And so I'm imagining they're fighting this desire for nostalgia or this desire to be introspective when they know that they've got to hurry up. They know that they've got to begin to move forward, but they're looking at this torn body that had been opened up in so many places, and they're beginning to think about the parade that happened just a few days earlier and how everybody was triumphantly waving palm branches I mean, it had to come rushing in like they could have never imagined on Sunday that they were going to be doing this on Friday. And so they're standing there probably in some level of disbelief, like they were just doing. And he had just spent time teaching in the temple days earlier. He had healed people. He had actually cursed a tree as a teaching to the disciples and watched and they watched it. They came back by it and it was withered. You know, there was so much that they were like, there's so much power in this man. There's so much amazing things that had happened just in the last few days. And now they're standing over Jesus and his body is lifeless on a piece of fabric in front of them. But they had to keep moving. So they worked together. I don't know if they literally carried Jesus' body or if they actually began to wrap the fabric in a way that they all could hold on to a piece. But they were obviously on a hill and they had to carry his body down the hill to a garden And as I'm gathering that if they did that, that at some level along the way, if they were anything like me, they would have needed a break. They probably took a minute and set him down a few times along the way just so that they could catch their breath. And then as they worked their way around the garden wall, which almost every garden in Jerusalem has like a knee-high rock wall, and so I'm guessing they found their way around those gardens and found the opening to go into what was an ordinary area where tombs were. This wasn't a place for palace like the kings weren't buried here 
This was a normal Jewish Hebrew tomb that was just, somebody had probably just taken a chisel and been paid to just make a hole in the, in the, in the ground, in this hillside. And there were multiple tombs, so Jesus was just going into one of multiple normal, common tombs. But I can imagine as they finally get him in there and they lay him on some sort of table, because we know from the resurrection story that he was on something where his, his clothes were. And he'd obviously had some kind of linens on him, but I can imagine that as they're going in, the emotion of them laying Jesus there had to be intense. But then I just want to remind you guys, the mother of Jesus, Mary, was most likely with them. And John had just been commissioned by Jesus to take care of her. And so imagine them going in, and I'm sure that somebody carried a bucket of water and a sponge because they couldn't just leave him lying there. They had to do something. We know that Mary was early on Sunday morning because she wanted to actually get the appropriate spices, the appropriate burial to him. And so she was waiting for the Sabbath to be over so she could get there. But I can't imagine they just threw his body in the cave and walked away. Somebody had to lovingly touch him, let alone the fact that I just want to remind us that Mary was most likely there. If, if, if it was my son, there's no way I would have just laid him down and left. I can imagine that as Mary touched Jesus, as only a mother could touch her son, that the emotion was spreading amongst those that were with him. And then I could only imagine that in the process of that, that somebody like John had the responsibility to take hold of Mary and say, Mary, you have to let him go. We need to leave. Can I just tell you guys this? I've had to do that. I remember standing next to a mom embracing her child after she'd been holding on to him for a long time and saying, I'm sorry, you have to leave him here. That is a terrible job to have, by the way. And so... Somehow John gets them to go, and then they're walking probably close to moonlight now. And, and I just want to remind you the scene. There were probably Roman soldiers everywhere. There were palace soldiers everywhere. Jerusalem had prepared for Passover, so there were people from all over the known world that had come there for that week. And so the streets were crowded, and it was dark. And I want to say this. The disciples were spread out. There were probably two or three hiding in somebody's space, either in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem on one side, two or three hiding somewhere else. And can I tell you this? I believe that Peter was hiding somewhere by himself. I can imagine that Peter was curled up against an olive tree somewhere, embracing his knees, trying to keep from shaking and weeping, realizing that he had denied Christ publicly. I could imagine that there were people that went back to that Last Supper room where they had just finished a meal with Jesus just the night before. And they were sitting in that room looking at each other in disbelief, thinking, wasn't he supposed to be our true king? Wasn't he supposed to be the one that was actually going to be majestic and make the kingdom majestic and the world was going to be blessed from him? Weren't we just in here thinking about the kingdom of God coming through him into the world? And now they're looking at each other like he's dead. I mean, what would they have done that evening? 
just sitting there realizing that there may have still been dirty dishes laying around from the night before if they were anything like many of us. They have actually still have, may have had the cup with some of the leftover drink in it that they had passed. And now imagine what was starting to rush into their mind as they were there. So my question for tonight is, do you know the story? Do you really understand what got them to this night? Because we have four testimony accounts in the Bible that talk about Jesus. And they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I choose to use the word testimony because you need to understand that there were people that knew Jesus. There were real people, real human beings that had meals with him, walked with him, talked with him. And we get a chance to look at many of their, their, their testimony accounts about what it was to spend time with Jesus. And when they were sharing their testimony of Jesus, now, if we had time tonight to thoroughly get us prepared for us understanding Good Friday, we would read all of the Gospels. But we can't do that tonight. Well, we could, but I would be here by myself in a very short period of time. Okay? (laughs) But the Gospels, in their own way, whether Matthew to the Jews or Luke to a friend, they are recounting God's promise to Abraham all the way through to Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell the narrative of what God's plan and purpose has been for mankind and how it came down to us needing Jesus. The Gospels are full of how it all, the story and the purpose and the plans of God came to full and complete fruition in Jesus Christ. The Gospels also talk about and explain in detail the multiplicity of evils that were attached to Christ on this cross. Not this cross, but on a cross like this. The Gospels talk about the political evil like the Roman oppression. The Gospels talk about the religious evil, the modern-day church in their time, which would have been the temple church, for, or the temple worship, the temple, where for us, I just used the word church, I want you guys to understand that part of it is that evil not only infests governments and infests the church. Evil, supernatural evil. There are many accounts in the Gospels of how Jesus spoke specifically to one that once was in worship in heaven, but had been cast out and was using scripture against Jesus, trying to tempt him to go his own way when he was all about his father's business. That supernatural evil, that spiritual oppression, was dealt with on this cross. And the Gospels also talk about, through the testimony witness that they spoke specifically to people about sin, like personal evil. And that would be me, and that would be you. The gospel accounts also tell us, and this is something that I think is very important, and I don't want you to lose sight of it, that debts must be forgiven, not paid. 
This cross is about forgiveness. Yes, there was a debt that we could not pay. But when you look at the scriptures, the gospel stories, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us. After the Lord's Prayer, forgive each other. The Sermon on the Mount, forgiveness on a grander scale. The parable about the rich man who had servants that owed him money and how he forgave one of a great debt and then he did not forgive one that had a lesser debt. And the wrath that came on that, because it wasn't about the debts being paid, it was about the debts being forgiven. So many places in the gospel, it is impossible for us tonight, sitting in this room, to understand this day, Good Friday, and the events that put Jesus on that cross, and the events that drove many to take him off of that cross and lay his body in a tomb, the only way you and I can ever process this day is through the one word of forgiveness. That is the best way. So tonight, the scripture, and it's long, and I'm reading it, which is dangerous. Um, and so I, you can, it's going to be on the screen. It's going to come out of Revelations 4, but if you want to turn your Bible on, you can, or you want to open your Bible to it. In Revelations chapter 4, starting in verse 6, listen to this. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covering their eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second like an ox, and the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like, fly, like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, and would you read it out loud with me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures giving glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him uh, who sits on the throne and worship him uh, who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne. And let's say this together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by you we created and have their being. And then Revelation chapter 5, the story continues. And then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so let me just stop here. This has nothing to do with the sermon. But every prayer we pray in this room is collected in a bowl. Every prayer you pray in your car or on the bus or on one of those little scooters, um, every prayer that you pray when you're at work, it is collected and it is a bowl and it is a incense and it smells good in the throne room of God. No wasted prayers. And they sang a new song saying, say it out loud with me, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering Thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, say it out loud with me. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And all and the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So let me just say, what can we learn from this passage in Revelation? I am just so drawn to telling the good Friday story through this passage. And it's hard for me not to every year want to come back and read this passage But the issue for me with you guys is this, is many of us have read this. Many of you have heard this. But when life gets hard next week, you have to remember this. We can't just be familiar with the story and the concepts in Scripture. We have to, on a moment's notice, be able to reach up and grab what is true and hold on to it because there are some real struggles that are in place in the world that are trying to keep us from holding on to what is true. And we can have a sacred day like today and it just be religion and it not be something that is conditioning our minds for the life that God has us to live on purpose. And so what can we learn from Revelation? I want you guys to recall there was a serious problem in the majestic throne room. Did you hear it? They had this worship service going on And there was a moment of great importance when a scroll was supposed to be opened. And the impression was, is that it couldn't be opened because there wasn't a person in heaven and there wasn't a man on earth. There wasn't anybody that could open that scroll. There was an incredible dilemma. And I think that part of our theology, what we understand about God impacts this. Because most of us want salvation in Jesus so we can spend eternity with God in heaven. And that is true. But then what do we do with our life until we, we, we get there? Just telling you you need forgiveness of your sins so you can go to heaven is such a fragment of the story. 
Because Jesus did something on this day that revolves around forgiveness that has a grand heaven majestic moment where it was important for this scroll to get opened and it was important for a lamb, a man, to open it. God wanted to put the world back right. God is not pleased that the earth has not been at its best since Genesis chapter 2. That is a long time in the scriptures for there not to be any true, like the, for the goodness of God not to be, be thriving and alive. And so what we find in this Revelation passage is that God had a design for the earth from the very beginning. And that design got broken. I, just, I want you guys to, to understand this tonight. There, God had a purpose. There was a way that God's unfolding plan appeared to be blocked. And since God had made the world in such a special way, he had to look for a human steward to unblock it. Look, many of you live your life blaming God for all the junk in the world, and he is not the one that needs to be blamed. You are looking at them. It was commissioned to us. Jesus spoke the world into into existence. He spoke the land and the seas and the birds and the animals and the fish and everything that there is. But he used his hands to make us. We were fashioned by the hands of God. Because there was a special purpose breathed into us. And that purpose was to be a steward of everything that God had just spoken and saying that is good. He entrusted all of that to us. And there seemed to be in this throne room no human being capable of taking God's plan forward. Yet Jesus. It had to be Jesus. Why did it have to be Jesus? Because he was the one that made the world in the first place. John chapter 1, he spoke it all into existence. So who would be the right one to redeem it? What better person in the Godhead to step out, like Philippians 2 talks about, and take on flesh and blood to be a man than Jesus Christ? The other thing I want you to notice in the Revelation passage is very clear that this lamb was not spotless any longer. This lamb was beaten, and it looked like it had been sacrificed. All right, that's the description. Can I tell you guys this? This cross really did deal with debt. This cross really did deal with sin. Jesus has the scars for eternity to prove it. His resurrected body still had nail holes in it. Ask Thomas. His feet, his back, scarred, so much so that this majestic throne room scene still has the identifying marks of Jesus Christ. So you and I are going to spend an eternity with God in heaven, and we are going to still see the cost. I just want you guys to understand that Jesus knew what he was doing. He made a conscious step Revelations talks about him making a conscious step forward. 
That's how much Jesus loves us. This Good Friday is a testimony of the fact that Jesus and God talked in the Garden of Gethsemane in a way that I wish that we could fully understand. But Jesus left that garden in his human strength as obedient to the cross. He laid himself down on it. He chose to do this for us. He chose to give himself up, to take down. The Lord Jesus made a conscious choice to do something to remove the sin barrier that was between us. So with all that that came out of the Gospels, with all that came out of Revelation, and there's so much more that we could talk about tonight, but for the sake of time, I just want to say, what did the early Christians then believe? If they... If they saw this, many of them, like this, the book of Acts talks about over 500 witnesses that saw Jesus alive. They, so therefore, there were probably thousands of people that saw him die and thousands of people that were then beginning to hear that he was now alive. So then what did they believe based upon the fact that the cross had happened in their life? And when you search the New Testament, there's so many things. I'm going to highlight a few of them. They believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the means whereby evil is confronted in, its, in all of its form and death is defeated. This Good Friday is a reminder to us that all evil has been confronted and you will need to be reminded of that tomorrow. You will need to be reminded of that on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday as we brush up against it. We're going to see the remnants of evil still in this world, and we're going to still bump up against it. But it has been defeated. And the early church, when you read their story, lived their life like it didn't have any control over them anymore. But Rome was still in power. There were crosses from Jerusalem nearly all the way to um, the coast, which would have been about 60 miles. And it says that during that time period, around the year 70, that the crosses were lined up only about 10 feet apart for 60 miles. How many people can you crucify in a 60-mile stretch? They saw evil. They still experienced evil, but when you read their early letters, they believed that those evil powers had no more control over them. Even the death that they were going to die had no more control over them. They no longer feared death. They also believed that God would forgive Anybody, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, master, didn't matter. It didn't matter if you were a murderer like Paul. It didn't matter if you were Mother Teresa, which she wasn't around then, right? But I'm sure there were. It didn't matter. It didn't matter whether you had big sin or little sin, which is we need to stop comparing ourselves to Hitler, okay? We are better than him, at least I hope so, but yet... Have you ever said a foul word to somebody? Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been selfish? Have you ever been unkind? Have you ever been harsh rather than gentle? That's sin. And the early church believed that you could confess all that and he would forgive you. It didn't matter how big or how small. They also believed that God would win the final victory over the forces of evil, chaos, and the earth. Just read Romans 8. They believed that there were going to be no more tornadoes, no more hurricanes, no more earthquakes, that there was going to come a day when the earth wasn't going to shake anymore and it was going to be good because the Lord was over all and every human being was doing what the Lord wanted out of an act of obedience. They believed it. 
They also believe that Jesus is modeling in his life and in his death how we should uphold our end of our stewardship vocation. I want, you to, I want to remind you, Revelations was that Jesus was the only worthy steward. And so the early church, understanding what Jesus was doing, is saying if we want to understand what stewardship in the earth looks like, then we should look what Jesus did. Why would Paul write so much in each of his letters about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Because he was wanting them to understand that that was what their stewardship call and vocation until the kingdom fully came was what they should be doing. They believe that Jesus is currently using the Holy Spirit that was with him to reorder and renew our minds. I want you guys to hear this. The Spirit of Christ is available to us. And the early church believed that they didn't think right. And they didn't believe, they, they believed that they didn't have the right priorities. And so they trusted the Holy Spirit to help them think right and develop the right priorities. And can I say that is probably an excellent place for many of us to meditate on. And I'm not talking about just wrong thinking in regards um, like mental disease or uh, things that, like, that are deep emotional depressions and the scars and the pains of life. I'm talking about just when do I go against the culture and when do I not? Just because everybody else is doing it, does that mean Jesus is okay with it? Like, and so they believe that Jesus could renew them so that they could be successful as the stewards in the vocation that they were called to of the earth. They also believe when you read the early letters that Jesus is giving us the ability to suffer and still worship and serve our Father in heaven with joy. We are, if you are part of the gallery family, I just want you to know after Easter we're starting a six-week series on joy. So I can't unpack all of this. If you're a guest, I hope this whets your appetite to come back. And for those of you that are regular, I hope this whets your appetite to be more consistent. But we're going to be talking about joy because I want you to understand this. Romans 12. It was the joy set before Jesus that he endured that cross. He didn't suffer as the end game. The joy was on the other side. And so he had to go through it to get to it. His goal wasn't to get to the cross. His goal was to get to it. Joy. Joy. And there's so much that we can learn by looking at Jesus, realizing that suffering isn't the focus. Suffering is what we just get through to get to our joy. But you have to come back for six weeks. Um, So what did the early Christians believe? Those were some of the highlights. What does this mean for us today? Let me say this. There's many things it could mean, and that's why we gather every week, and we try to teach consistently, and we want to be good stewards of teaching to you. Um, but here is what I believe it means for us tonight. Let me start with those of you that believe in Jesus already. The church is who we are. If you believe in Jesus Christ, we are the church. It's called several other things in the New Testament, the family of God, which makes you and I what? Brothers and sisters. So whether we call it the church or the family, the church should be a living picture of Jesus Christ. The church should be, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the image of God's Son, 
displayed in the world. And we are, as the church, we are invited to start living his powerful forgiveness message now. We're invited. Start early, because eternity is going to be all of it. But we get a chance to be invited in on it early. We have a chance to see how he displayed it. We can learn from it and go do it ourselves. Because the goal isn't the suffering of forgiveness. The goal is to get to the joy on the other end of the forgiveness journey. There's joy there for us. And it isn't that the cross has won a victory, so there's nothing to do. I want you guys to understand this. It's very often understood that Jesus paid it all and it's all done. And he said it is finished. So therefore you and I feel like it's finished and therefore there's nothing left to do because Jesus said it was finished. But he was finishing being the one human being that could lay his life down to break open this mysterious scroll that has something to do with all of us. Rather, the cross won a victory, and as a result of that victory, there are now redeemed human beings ready to act as God's ambassadors, as God's hands, as God's feet, as God's agents, as God's body, as his breath, as his touch, as his expression of love that can then reflect the image of God into the world. Because of that victory, we now get to be full-on participants in something that we were held apart from. We don't have to wait just for the pearly gates and for all the Peter jokes standing at the gate. We can just start now. We get to contribute in the peacefulness of our lives, the gentleness of our lives. We can worship the king through our compassion, through our kindness, through our generosity, through our persevering, and through the ways that we love. That was for the church. Now, for those of you that don't believe yet, which I think might just be a few of you, I want you guys to pay very close attention to this. And it's not a verse that I read, but I want to put it up here for you. Luke 23, 46. Luke says this as Jesus' last words on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want you guys to know that when Jesus was on the cross, about to die, He verbally said, I trust you with my life. He said, I trust you with my life. Into your hands, I put myself. And what happened three days later? He not just rose from the dead. He rose as the Lord of all. Like dead man on a cross on Friday to King of kings and Lord of lords, when you put yourself in God's hands, there could be no better place for you to place yourself. But all you have to say is, Father, I want to be in your hands. I want your forgiveness. I want there to be nothing separating me from you. And so we can look at the example of Christ and say, Father, I trust you. I trust you with my life. Yes, we need to realize that we're sinners. Yes, we need to realize that this love is generous because we could never have paid for it. This is beyond payment. This is forgiveness on a grand scale that we never understood fully the debt that we have. And you will receive it if you just ask for it. 
All you have to do tonight is to say, Father, I want your forgiveness, and you will have it. So for all of us, as we get ready to walk out of here tonight, what is Good Friday? I'm going to bring back an image for you from 9-11. This banner hung on the side of a building not long after the towers fell, and I believe we have a picture of it. We will never forget. Good Friday is the day in Christianity and in the church that we say we will never forget. Everybody wants the joy of Easter Sunday morning, but it was Friday that we get the joy from. We can't just celebrate on the touchdown, the win. We have to celebrate and remember what it actually took because what kind of problem do we have if you've been a part of the Gallery Church for a while? We have a forgetting problem. Before long, we might realize, oh, this table is about me. Or this world revolves around me. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him and this great love that he has shown us. Actually, it has a lot to do with us because God's looking for a body. God's looking for an expression of himself in this world. And we must not forget. That's why we come to the Lord's table. Listen to what Jesus said at the end of his life, the night before he went to the cross. Luke twenty-two, nineteen and 20. Do this in remembrance of me. It's like, remember this. This is my body given for you. The cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So on the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, what did he want them to remember? Did he want them to remember all of his teachings? Did he want them to remember everybody he healed? Did he want them to remember everybody that he confronted about their hypocrisy? No. Did he want them to remember that he fed thousands of people? Did he want them to remember that he controlled the weather? No, he said to them, I want you to remember what I'm going to do tomorrow. Often remember what I did tomorrow. Because you're going to see that my body was broken and my blood was poured out. Jesus wanted his disciples to remember his death because his dying shows us so much about what living really looks like. In, in John's gospel, right before Jesus went to the cross, he, I believe, gave what I think was a great last will and testament to his disciples. He says to them in John thirteen thirty four, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's purpose. Can I tell you guys this? And I don't want to get too far ahead because we've got six weeks of teachings to come. Some of you don't know joy because you don't know your purpose. The cross and what Jesus revealed on the cross shows us our purpose. It also shows how much we're loved, how much we're forgiven, but it also reveals to us our purpose. And so there is nothing greater that you and I can do than to remember often what Good Friday is. And so here's how we're going to respond tonight. Um, Three ways. First, if you have not placed your trust in Jesus, tonight's the night. You've got to look to your Father in heaven and say, I trust you. 
And so we have some of our elders in the room. It's people on our prayer team. And I know I didn't ask you ahead of time to do this, but if you could just make yourself available on the walls, if you want to grab one of the red lanyards, I'd love for you to do that. Because if you tonight want to put your trust in Christ, either turn to the friend that invited you or go to one of them that are going to be available to you and just tell them you want to place your trust in Christ and they will help you understand and to be able to walk through It's just as simple as saying, Father, forgive me. I trust you. And just tell them that that's the prayer you prayed. The rest of us, there's two more responses. The first is this, the Lord's table. Tonight, we are going to come to the table and say we never forget. And then we're going to go through a common table like we do on Sunday mornings. So, Olivia, if you can come on up, we're going to get ready to sing this last song. And you're going to have a chance to come to the table. And you're going to have a chance to come and gather and look at one another. This is his body. But before we start tonight, we're going to add a phrase. We will not forget. So you come to the table, you look at each other. We will not forget. Everybody says it. And then his body broken for you. His blood poured out. You can even add poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. All right? Let's get really complicated tonight. Right? And then let's look at one another and say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. Because this is worthy of never forgetting. We get our forgiveness that we need. We get to see love displayed so that we know how to go live it. And then we have our purpose. And then we can find joy, which is there for us. And then the cross tonight. Some of you need to have a moment to meditate on this evening. And allow yourself to find yourself here in the cross. And so if you've been a part of our church in the past, you'll know what this exercise looks like. But this exercise is you just grabbing a piece of paper and a pen and writing on it one word, drawing a picture. Or even if you want to leave it blank, you can do it that. Because you and the Lord are doing an exercise together. But ever since uh, Rob made this for our church, I have had this image in my mind almost year-round, and every time I see it on Sunday, I can recall what the last Good Friday was like for me because I remember writing things on here, things that are still discouraging me, things that I'm bound up by, things that I still am wrestling with in my life, wanting to look like Jesus, but I'm struggling. I remember a couple years ago, I was actually six years ago, I wrote the word anger on my Good Friday card, and then I actually took a nail and actually did this, And then I went away for 90 days on a sabbatical. (laughs) And that's why I can remember very vividly what my Good Friday was that year, because I knew that Jesus wasn't angry. And every time I displayed anger, I wasn't showing the image of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, as soon as Olivia is done, the music's going to stop. The Lord's table will be for you to go to as you want. But the cross is going to be open for you for a little while. And I want you to take time to come and just leave it. This isn't for you to write it down, peg it here, and then to walk out with it. This is for you to say, I'm leaving my anger here. This is, I am forgiven, and my sins have been forgiven. And I I don't have to take it with me because according to Jesus and according to what the early church believed, it no longer had any authority over me, even though I get the... It seems like I see it every time I turn the corner. I have victory over this now, and I can practice my victory now, knowing that I'm going to eternally be free from it but I can start practicing it today.